a minister of education saying that kids must just accept load shedding as it is because there's nothing that can be done about it. You can never make liberators governors. You can't do that. Poverty has a face in this country and wealth has a face in this country. And the face of wealth, the face of poverty, they don't look the same. In 2017, I had the experience of being chased by a bunch of white girls saying that they're imitating the KKK. The Caesar and Bofu Welsh Experience Podcast. Spread the fire, welcome back to SMWX. And today I'm extremely excited to be joined by author, activist, Zuleika Patel. Zuleika has been on SMWX once before and we're really glad to invite her back. So please in the comments down below, give us a round of applause for Zuleika Patel. Zuleika, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, it's great to have you here and to have you in person for the first time. Yeah, yeah. I remember we did it virtually because of COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here we are. That interview was quite amazing. I actually went back to watch it. And you said so many things that kind of resonated with me. And the one thing you said was, the Rainbow Nation is the biggest lie that South Africans have ever been told. Do you still feel that I lie, way? though. I didn't lie. Do you still feel that way? Yes, I do. I truly do. And I feel that way because it's even like that statement of saying, we're all on the same boat. Unfortunately, we're not all on the same boat. Some are on cruises, others are on yachts, others are on planks floating in the ocean. We're mm. not, we can't say we're some united rainbow nation when there's so many things that separate us. Economically, we're separated. We can't just say we're a united rainbow nation and try to use that as a plaster to cover the actual issues that South Africa has, very deep issues with the race, where almost every single issue in South Africa is determined on the basis of race, making that the center of a lot of issues in our country, right? And we don't have the willingness to accept that as yet, right? So I really still feel the same way, that the Rainbow Nation is the biggest scam South Africa has ever been, been made to believe. It's actually interesting thinking about it now because when you said that two years ago, there was still a lot of hope that, you know, maybe things were changing and maybe, mm -hmm. you know, around the corner, we would actually enter some new era. But, you know, that's not even so controversial a statement anymore because it feels like everyone is kind of just feeling like this thing is just going one way and that's, that's self. Yeah, and I think that the reason why I say the Rainbow Nation is the biggest scam ever is because... Also, number one, the whole theory of the Rainbow Nation mm. has never been used in a positive light ever. It's never been used as this um, theory to try bring a sense of unity to South Africans. It's either always been used to gaslight black South Africans on the real hardcore issues of our daily lived experiences in this country, or it's been used... Um, by white privilege to say, no, you've got a black government though. We're the rainbow nation. There's not a single white person in government or all those lines that um, are used by your Susans and your Beckys and your Karens, you know? Um, and it's <laughs> never been used as, as a sense of unity to try and bring South Africans together and bring mm. them together consciously to think about um, our actual lived experiences, our unique, different lived experiences daily in this country. So it's not used in a conscious light, you know. Mm -hmm. It's just used to gaslight and cover the real issues of the country. Mm. And it's interesting that you mentioned race because, you know, many people today are focusing on governance challenges and questions of racism, even since, you know, 2016 when you spotlighted them at school, for example, it feels like they've kind of gone off of the agenda of the South African political debate. People are talking about misgovernance, people are talking about load shedding, etc. And in some ways, it feels like the conversation about racial justice has gone backwards in a way. Do, do you feel that? Yes, it has gone backwards. And one of the things that I think is very disheartening, right, is the fact that we always um, look at the country and the 
the, the issues that the country is facing in terms of some of the crises that we have. Yeah. When we talk about unemployment, we tend to deviate all these subjects from race. And we tend to just say, no, it's not a race issue, or think that South Africa no longer has race issues and just say South Africa maybe has a problem in administration, South Africa maybe has a problem in service delivery, but not actually looking into the real crux of the matter where in all these um, threads of injustice, sure. there's a common central issue being raised. You look at unemployment, who are the majority unemployed people? Black youth, right? Number one, um, we know why black youth are number one, the most unemployed people. Even if, um, even if you walk into a corporate room for an interview, you know you're going to get racially profiled. You know that, right? So um, even issues like talking about why a lot of South, Africa, South Africans don't have access to clean water, a basic, basic, bare minimum need, right? You ask yourself why. In Vartocliffe, do they have do they have dirty water running from the taps? No, they don't. They have crystal clear, clean water. But no, you look at rural areas and township areas that still face issues where the bare minimum bare minimum basic rights still hasn't been met. And who is the population in those communities? It's black people. So we cannot remove race from the issues that we're facing and try and act as if these issues are brand new, brand new phenomena, as if they don't have a core central problem, right? And that core central problem being systemic racism, right? Because like the idea which you write about in your book saying there's a new apartheid. We live in a country where this is practically how I understand how the country is. Mm. We had a system that excluded black people from um, having basic rights, a system that was constitutionally racist, and then all that changed was it was negotiated for black people to be in governance. But that system has not been... Um, annihilated completely. It still exists, right? And you see it in the economy. You see it in the many different facets of our daily life. And we can't remove it. And I think that's the most disheartening issue mm. about South Africa right now is that we think that these problems just swing out from out of the blue. But there's a central core issue which we're failing to address is that the country has a race problem, a very big one, an uncomfortable one at that fault, like just to put that out there, you mm. know? No, I mean, that that's so fascinating. And I think what, what fascinates me is that there's this assumption that the younger and younger South Africans are, the less racism, you know, affects them. And it seems to me that, if anything, firstly, my generation has started questioning questioning that, but your generation is not even, like, playing that game anymore. They're just like, you know what, throw this whole thing out, it's a scam, Let's move on. And I think people in a slightly older generation mm -hmm. don't understand just how much race still affects life in South Africa, no matter how old or young you are. Yeah. No, um, just to take it back to one of my experiences in high school, mm. um, because you brought up the fact that people assume that my generation, like Gen Z, people born in 2000, the 2000s era yeah. or post-1996, don't mm. the screw, get screw affected. Generation. Okay, no. Don't get <laughs> affected by um, racism. Or in our generation, there isn't people who are overtly racist. When I was mm. in high school, there was a bunch of white girls that wore white sheets mm. and chased black girls saying they're imitating the KKK. Mm. That makes you ask yourself and understand that South Africa, this... Our, our um, issue of racism is systemic. There's an engine that's constantly, that engine is the driving force behind this issue. And that engine was um, built by people in the past, your Hendrik for words, it was mechaniced by them. And it still has people driving it. It still has people at the front line center of that engine. That's why it gets passed down from generation to generation to generation. That's why in 2017, I had the experience of being chased by a bunch of white girls saying that they're imitating the KKK. Mm. Where did they get, get that from? Who taught them that? Who imparted that into their minds that you taunt black people? Mm. This, you have to taunt them because they're more inferior to you. Who taught them that, right? That's why I say that engine still has people 
in the front line yeah. driving it, right? So it's not like um, my generation doesn't face racism. My generation has been facing um, even quite a harsh racism because it's like that racism we face comes with gaslighting because it's like, mm. oh, at the same time, we must be grateful because we're the people who get to go to um, your former Model C schools, former whites-only schools. We must be grateful for being there. Um, some, someone fought for us to be there, and so we should be grateful. But at what cost? Because we're there at the cost of our mental health because every single day being there is like, there's a part of you that is constantly at war every single day. There's no peace for you. And it comes with a lot of gaslighting that, mm. no, this isn't real. Like, um, you know, Mandela was president. Uh, we're really free, you know, hey? Uh, I don't understand why you guys are so angry. You know, it's like every single day that's your lived experience, you know, and mm. my generation still experiences racism. And I don't think that it's quite appropriate to say that um, because my generation is so young and born into this um, new South Africa, uh, we don't face racism. Mm. Uh, we still do because it's not like a new South Africa. It's just a South Africa with new faces running it, but still the same system, you know? And I like what you say because where where is racism? Racism is, is in those spaces of privilege that black people were previously excluded from systematically. But now we're in this weird place in our country's history where we can gain access to those spaces, but you're surrounded in many ways by... Um, you're surrounded and, and you're outnumbered in these spaces. And you are one of the first people in your family or, or in, in the history of the country who actually sees these places and these spaces that you're excluded from. And what do people think happens when, when you get there? Like you actually start to see the racism um, and, and, and feel these spaces that other people have never even been allowed into. And that's a strange place to be um, at this moment in our country. Mm. Yeah. I think it's very complicated to be in those spaces because it's like, it comes with a lot of, um, it comes with a lot of heavy thoughts mm. psychologically because at the same time, it's like your parents that send you there, the generation that came before you, want you to be so, so thankful to be there. Mm. And, you know, not make any mistake at all because you it's a privilege for you to be there not like it's your right to be there mm. it's like it's a privilege for you to be there when actually it's not a privilege it's your right because it's a space in a country which you are part of right yeah. so it's it's it really weighs down on you heavy because the generation that came before you doesn't want you to say a single thing that would jeopardize your place there mm. But then at the same time, every single day, it's you are at war. Either you're at war quietly, internally, you just have to keep taking everything that comes at you. Keep taking the, um, the statements, the ignorant statements. Keep taking the racial gaslighting. Keep taking things of how black children are never seen as sensitive, even, at all. Mm. Like we've taken away sensitivity from black children. Mm. Black children are not allowed to cry. You can hurt black children emotionally and they're expected to just take that. But if it's a white child, we all gather up in arms because she's going to cry and turn red. Yeah. But when it's a black child, no one has that sensitivity. And those are the things you have to take daily. And it becomes a very difficult choice. Do you want to speak up? Do you not want to speak up? Speaking up comes with racial gaslighting. Speaking up comes with you defy what your parents tell you, mm. that you need to be so thankful to be there, you know? So yeah. it's it becomes a really heavy, heavy mentally and psychologically very heavy experience. Mm. And personally, I decided to do the opposite and speak up because I couldn't take it anymore. Um, and a lot of people think that have this idea that my activism just started in the gates of Pretoria High School for Girls. Yeah. My, um, you can't talk about Zuleika Patel being an activist without talking about my background and my identity because the complication of my identity is what birthed my activism and what birthed me being very socially aware of what 
um, our country actually is and me deciding to get to a point whereby I couldn't take it anymore and I wanted to mm. speak up. Um, being born um, being born in an interracial and an interfaith family, mm. being um, having a black mom, an Indian immigrant Muslim father, and that all coming together to form my identity yeah. made me very socially aware. And the many experiences I had growing up, like not being accepted by my dad's family because I, I'll never be Indian enough for them, mm. you know, ever, ever. And um, they don't understand why I look the way I look, right? Mm. And those experiences really shaped me wanting to speak up because hmm. what I experienced in Girls High was not new to me experiencing it in just that institution. I experienced it in all the primary schools I went to. I experienced it in preschool. I experienced it throughout my childhood. And so it became very eye-opening for me that I had to ask myself, I've gone through this my whole life. Like really, I had to really say to myself, like really bro, like is this where we at? Like we're just gonna keep taking these knocks, dude. Mm. So mm -hmm. as much as I was really actually quite young and also really scared, because um, they instill a lot of fear in you as well in these schools. Yeah. It's like, um, you need to be grateful you're here because of the quota. I remember I used to always get told, you're here because of a quota. And mind you, we thought that you were a different race when we met, read your name. And here you mm. come adding one more onto the onto onto the black race, adding one more. I had my, my headmistress always remind me, we accepted you because we, we read your name and thought you were something else. Mm. So you need to be grateful. Your place here is on thin ice all the time. So um, that instilled a lot of fear in me, but it's like I took that decision because of what I constantly went through my entire life. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Wow, there's so much that I'd like to unpack there. I think the first thing is, is when you say sensitivity and the lack of sensitivity that we afford to black children. And you said something at the launch of your book that has, has stuck with me since then when you were talking about hair. And you were just talking about the way that often as black people, we are violent with our own hair. And, and we, like, we co or, or our parents are violent with our hair. And, and we comb it in this like painful way because somehow we've been taught that we can disregard our own feelings and our own pain by the world so much. And that stuck with me so much because I thought about like how I would comb my hair or, or how I would be like rough with my own hair or be taught to be rough with my own hair. And I had never thought about like why that was the case. And since that launch, I've always just made a point of like, being nice to my own hair and like not hurting myself if I'm combing my hair or something. And it was just like that little thing that unlocked how we sometimes deny even ourselves that sensitivity because we are denied that sensitivity in the world. Mm. Yeah. I'm really glad my book launch had an impact on you. Yay. Had an impact on an academic, guys. Yay. <laughs> um, but um, I think that, yeah, it that comes with a lot of just your own self-consciousness and mm. just coming out of, we all have a prison in our mind where it's up to you. At that point, there is no one that can come and save you from your own mental prison. That's where you take the decision to become your own liberator and take yourself out of your own mental prison because we've all gone through as black people denying ourselves the correct sensitivity. Um, I went through high school with a lot of serious mental health issues that mm. I never afforded myself the, the sensitivity to see a psychologist mm. or even just accept that I'm not, I wasn't like a fully okay person. I went through very deep depression, mm. um, anxiety, um, I, I, I couldn't, I, I, I had a point where I couldn't go to school without like twitching my hands a lot from just anxiety constantly. And I never um, really also gave myself that kind of sensitivity that yeah. um, I'm not okay and I kind of need to find help mm. um, and it's okay to not be okay. And that was also primarily because I was constantly in 
a space daily where I was the villain and seen as the villain. Mm. And people were, um, people were influenced to see me as this villain. So villains don't, ha don't get to have sensitivity. Mm. Villains can't be sensitive, you know. So that affected me and also not giving myself that type of um, sensitivity that I deserved at the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, the other thing you say is, is just when you go into these spaces, like how much it can actually affect one's own mental health, how much speaking up can actually take a toll. And you, you kind of get put on this pedestal as the person who's brave enough to speak out. And you can almost fall into that role. And then suddenly you realize, actually, you know what? Speaking out is... Is, is not always easy. And it's it's not always something that you, you want to do. Like maybe there's a time to speak out, but maybe there's a time when you just don't want to speak out and then people are like, why are you not speaking out now? You're the person who speaks out. So I think for, for like a lot of people who are aspiring to go into a space of activism or, or a space of public public talking, um, it's important to know that, that that there are those burdens that you carry when you do, you know, make those statements. I, I even often wonder, like, do you do you get tired of talking about the Pretoria girls thing? Like, because, I mean, I didn't, I, like, I alluded to it, you know, but that, that was actually quite a long time ago, you know? And it's like, yeah. are people still seeing you through that prism, which is like, what is it? It's like more than five years ago now. It's, it's so close to 10 years. Is it 10 years? No, it's seven. Wow, it's seven years. But it's years. close to 10. You know? I, I'm also getting old, guys. Come on. Now. Like, um, um, yeah, so do you, like, so just on the burdens, but also do you, do you get tired of like being seen through that one thing that you happened to do in high school when so much has happened since then? You know, I think that I also can't blame people for always referencing that because that was something very important in... South Africa's history, you know, um, because it happened in what we see as our democratic era, the yeah. era where we seem to think racism was buried long time ago, right? Um, and that was one of one of the times where systemic racism was brought to light, right? And the question of um, black people having the um, owning autonomy over their own, owning their their own, having ownership over their autonomy was also raised as a question, right? Mm. And there were a lot of issues that were raised with that, that are very important in South Africa's, um, let me say, journey yeah. to where we're supposed to go. So I don't blame people for constantly bringing that up. I, I don't, mm. honestly speaking, mm. right? Um, because it is quite a relevant subject. The the issue that was at the core of everything that happened is a till now a very relevant subject that you know we can't close that book and say sure. we're done talking about that because it wasn't just a Pretoria Girls High issue. Mm. It is a South African social just social injustice crisis that we've always had right since 1994 till today. That's an issue that we've always had since the first time black people were allowed into those schools is an issue that's existed since then, and it hasn't been solved yet. So we can't close that book. But on a personal note, um, mm. I think that um, I would also like a sense of like, can I not be seen as my 13-year-old self? Mm. Because I'm like, guys, I'm kind of getting old now. So, um, yeah. but... It, not like old, like I'm, I'm growing older, like I'm becoming an adult. Can I not be seen mm. as, a, as my 13-year-old self anymore? Like, sure. Um, but I don't blame people. So I don't know. It's, mm. it's a catch-22 because I don't blame people. But yeah. um, I, I wouldn't really say I, it's always the greatest thing to talk about mm. all the time because... Mm. Um, also, what people don't understand is that's also something I'm trying to heal from. Mm. At the end of the day, I think we take away um, when everyone talks about, oh, the girls at Pretoria Girls High, who let that 
that movement, people seem to take away the human aspect that yeah. these were just humans, little humans mm. for that matter, mm. who have feelings and were deeply affected and have gotten a lifelong trauma that is very hard to get over it, right? Um, there are just certain things about it that sometimes it's not the easiest thing to, to talk about because it's mm -hmm. like, it brings back a lot of the um, difficult things that are, that people don't know of, you know? Um, like, for example, every day, being so young, having to wake up to go to an environment where there's no sensitivity for you. Mm. Um, and, and a lot of the loneliness that came with it and the depression that came with it, mm. which is not going to be a thing you heal from tomorrow. It's a very difficult matter that, you know, still affects me till today, right? Mm. Um, and that's what people just don't understand that, in a lot of stuff, even the people that were part of Fismas Fall, at the end of the day, those people are activists, but there's a human element to it where these are human beings with feelings too, mm. where people have been shattered from what they experienced. And there's a lot of difficult stuff that people don't like to talk about all the time. That's very hard. And I don't think sometimes we have that um, consciousness to really understand that these are just human beings and this might be a difficult subject for them mm. because mm. of mm. what they've gone through. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. <clears throat> I, I hear you and I, and I thank you for sharing with us just, you know, how much, how much it means and how much it, it still hurts. And, you know, I, I think... We, we often look at these questions as things that happened in the news without realizing how they affect the, the people who are involved. And like, I'm really sorry, you know, I'm really sorry that it, it, it hurt that much. And yeah, yeah, um, <sighs> yeah. A day at a time, guys. Mm, mm. I have never cried on SMWX, but I think I was very close as well. It was just like, <laughs> oh, um, you know, Zuleika, I think from that moment, a lot of South Africans also just like, although they never knew you or they never met you, they, they developed this like affinity for you and this solidarity with you. And... Yeah, just like, I don't think you even know how, even how difficult it, it was for you. Like, you probably also didn't see how many people were just rooting for you and just like, you know, just finally someone actually, you know, said and did this thing. Um, and I do, I do also want you to know that, you know, I, I don't know to what extent you do, but like that thing sent shockwaves across the entire, entire country, but also it, it, it inspired um, a whole generation of, of people as well. Um, so I do hope you also know that. Um, I really think that um, I did see affection and it did, it did help and make things lighter for me and mm. really keep me going because it, it really wasn't easy every day. Um, I fought tooth and nail to matriculate. Um, it was not easy at all. Um, and a lot of... Uh, the affection people showed me and solidarity really kept me going. Mm. Um, yeah, it did keep me going that there are people out there that, you know, don't see me as a villain mm. and don't want to, like, hurt me and tear me down. There are people that actually see a sense of hope in me, mm. you know? Absolutely. So that, that did keep me going, to be honest. I saw it. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear it. And and moving away from that moment and your life, like you say, like, I can't believe it's seven years ago, but, you know, so much has happened. You've left school. You're now at university. 
Mm -hmm. um, tell us about that process of moving away from school, a period in your life which was obviously so important because of all the things that happened there, and now moving into a new phase of your life and a, and a new era. It's been interesting. Still is quite interesting. Mm. Um, adulting is the bottom. <laughs> um, yeah, I was excited, yeah. but welcome. it's truly welcome, the, the bottom yeah. of the barrel. Um, <laughs> but I think that um, my new era of life is really I've, I've um, dedicated it to myself and um, centering myself. So that's been one of the greatest aspects of it is that mm. my life is finally about me, you know. And I, I'm in control of a lot of my time, a lot of, like you mentioned, sometimes you don't want to speak up because mm. you just always do it all the time. And it's, so I've gotten to a point where I'm comfortable with saying no mm. and I'm comfortable with your discomfort and not accepting my no, it's, it's okay. And um, mm. university has been quite interesting. Um, not easy, but also enjoyable at the same time, but mm. very interesting. And um, I've learned a lot as well uh, from an academic point of view and also just from a life perspective. So it's been interesting and it's been interesting because uh, funny enough, people come with the mentality of, oh, you're the troublemaker from that school. No troublemaking here, mm. you know? Mm. And then it's also been interesting to see how people would perceive me in mm. that space, you know? Mm. Uh, it's, it's been interesting. Like sometimes when people mark my papers, it's like they, like I once got a comment that said to me, yo, dude, you really, really, really fight through everything in your life. You're literally in this essay fighting this question. And, I, mm. and it's interesting to also just look at how people perceive you in mm. a different space in mm. your life. Mm. So that's been quite an interesting thing for me, just looking at how people perceive me in a different space in my yeah. life. But really, I've just been focusing on living my youth in this era, doing the things I didn't get to do in the era where I was constantly mm. the villain, couldn't do a lot of things, had a lot of my, because I had my childhood chopped away, now I'm really centering, enjoying my mm. youth. Mm. That's great. And You're, you're studying law. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to study law? And how has the study of law been different to what you expected? And also maybe conformed with, with your expectations? I chose to study law because um, I've always wanted to become a lawyer. And I wanted to study law because law is a very important thing because um, the laws of a country influence the politics of a country and the politics of a country influence how the law will play out. It's a vice versa thing between mm. the two. So you can never cut out politics from law and you can't, you can't cut out law from politics. The two intersect with each other all the time. Sure. And I wanted to also enrich my activism mm. and enrich, mm. enrich this mission that I have for social justice, enrich it from a perspective of understanding the law, right, before you go to the ground and fight for certain issues, understanding how the law works with those, um, with those issues. And also understanding the constitution has been quite interesting because it's raised another question for me. Mm. Where was the failure? At what point in which year? Because mm. the constitution is a phenomenal document that even addresses redress and every single issue um, regarding redress, redistribution is addressed in the constitution. And the constitution is phenomenal out, out of this world, but it's not reflected in our country's politics yeah. at all and in our governance and in the democracy we've experienced to this current point. So it's raised a very um, a burning question in me to really ask myself, where was the failure? And with that, who was complicit for that failure? 
and what's causing this constant failure mm. to apply what's what's in the constitution to our society because it's like i ask myself it's great that we have this this constitution but the application of it is not so great and how do we better do that so mm. um studying law has been very interesting it's not the easiest of degrees i really now have soft spot for lawyers i <laughs> i truly do yeah. um i really do um but it's raised a lot of burning questions in me mm. um regarding uh the state of our country that is that is ultimately in many ways the question because on the one hand we have this vision for our country which seems to supersede other countries visions which is bold you know sure we can quibble about whether it's radical enough but it's it's pretty radical as constitutions go and yet there's this gap between the law that we enshrine for our society on the one hand and the the lived reality and the 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 practice of what it means to live in South Africa today mm. do you have any like early thoughts on on what is responsible for that gap like i know you say it's a burning question and i think it's a burning question in all of our minds because it's a mystery in some ways how can you have such progressive law and such regressive outcomes yeah but yeah i mean like what do you think is is actually behind that you know it makes me think of something that was once said by one of the greatest leaders africa has had um where he said that you can never make liberators governors you can't do that and i think that that quote resonates with all of africa not just south africa it's not unique to south africa alone it's an african issue that we have a problem with our governance because one thing that for me has become an, an early thought of where the problem lies mm. is that when you look at governance right well for south africa we also have a problem with our administration as well we can't leave that out sure but talking about our governance the problem that we've had is that in all of africa not just south africa a continental issue is that it's now switched the enemy looks like us the mm. enemy of that's responsible for how our continent is currently right that's responsible for for um basic service delivery of basic bare minimum human rights in south africa the enemy looks exactly like us and that's where the problem lies is that it's like we don't even see it as the enemy anymore because it looks like us mm. and i think that one of my early thoughts of trying to answer that question because it's a very difficult question to answer right and i don't think i i'll be able to answer it now mm. i think it will maybe take years to really get to the bottom of the answer to that question yeah. but one of my early thoughts is looking at our government and just also really understanding and especially when we talk about south africa looking at south africa looking at how our government structure it's almost like we made the mistake of making our liberators our governors because the reason why i say we made that mistake is because there's greedy politics right how are you so inhumane to take money from poor people and not give poor people water how is it a sense of entitlement that because of all the things you went through right all the trauma you've gotten from fighting to liberate south africa from the clutches of the apartheid regime and the governance of the apartheid regime is it now a sense of entitlement that's created greedy politics what is it why do you take from poor black people why right and also the gatekeeping you don't want to let anyone else in now there must be this invisible line queue for for leadership you can't skip that queue when you skip that queue it's offensive mm. you can't skip it there's a queue oh this one can't be president yet because that comrade who fought in this year must still come and be a minister mm. uh, you know it's for me i really cannot 
turn a blind eye to the fact that one of the mistakes we've made in South Africa is the fact that our liberators are our governors. And the reason why I say that, the greedy politics, the gatekeeping, right? Um, not being open to a new approach, right? Not being open to that. And telling people to be grateful for what they have and what they have is falling apart. A minister of education saying that kids must just accept load shedding as it is because there's nothing that can be done about it. That's the least of their problems. Do we begin to understand what the education system was like before then? Telling people to accept, it's not even like we call it an inconvenience, telling people to accept the fact that we can't even be given bare minimum human rights and telling people, be okay with that because you don't know what I've had to go through, mm. right? That's the mistake that we've made. And the mistake that now there will always be a sense of entitlement. I truly believe, honestly, from the bottom of my heart, that in order to turn South Africa around, we need a fresh generation in governance. It's not going to turn around because I bring it back to the human psychological element. Mm. It's not going to work out because at the end of the day, as difficult as it may be to say, there is greedy politics because of a sense of entitlement. I fought for you. Why should I not be getting this and that and that, mm. right? And the fact that um, we have such progressive laws, progressive laws that even deal with the economy, but also the, the public servants of this country do not want to live the life that majority of South Africans live, right? Public servants must have benefits of medical aid instead of going to fix the public health care system because, oh, you're a minister. You can't be admitted at a government hospital. You have to go to a private hospital. Why can you not fix the public hospital? Why? You know? And so I really cannot turn a blind eye to government because it's also like, how many years have you had now? How many? You couldn't even do one correct thing, eradicate pit toilets like just the toilets, mm. you know? Mm. And it's like, what have you been doing? And then you look at it and it's like, there's really greedy politics because we've had so much money coming in and out of this economy, you couldn't even put toilets in schools, just toilets. No, I'm not saying rebuild all the schools. I'm just saying put a toilet, a proper one, you know? And for me, I'm really, as, I, as, I, as I'm on this journey to try and, answer that question mm. government is part of the answer to that question and mm. i cannot turn a blind eye to it i i can't unfortunately i cannot mm. i can't there's no doubt about that and i guess it's one of those mysteries that we're all going to be trying to resolve as we also try to act and and try and figure out how did things and where did things go so wrong because i guess we can all feel like things have Things are heading towards rock bottom. I, for one, don't believe we're at rock bottom yet because no. this country can still <laughs> fall very, very far. But that's that's where it's going to fall if we don't do something but, soon. But you know one thing for me that's just been a question, and I really hope that mm. one day I can have the opportunity to speak to someone that can maybe, even if they can't give me answers, but give me a sense of direction in finding an answer. Yeah. There's no minutes of the Codessa meeting. Till today, South Africa, we always talk about um, our democracy and how it's falling apart mm. and how I don't think that we have a broken democracy. I just think that we have a system that's not working for democracy. There's a system that's running the country which does not work. It can't gel with democracy, right? But what's been a question for me is the fact that we do not know what exactly was negotiated. And that is a huge mystery because you find out about things like the sunset clause. You find out about things how um, the apartheid regime w was not ready to let go fully of power. They wanted shared power. And that makes you ask, what does shared power mean? Does shared power mean, okay, black people can be in governance, but the economy remains in white hands? Does that mean, Governance was the, was, was, the, was the sole issue at the negotiations, you know? 
So I hope that one day I can have the opportunity to really get um, to speak to someone that can maybe even give me a sense of direction mm. in the answer to that question because that's an important question in answering where exactly was the failure to apply this yeah. progressive constitution because we would then need to understand what was what was at the core issue in the negotiations, what was at the center of the discussion, mm. what exactly was negotiated, like what were their percentages and what exactly did they look like, mm. right? What were we just negotiating for governance and not the economy, not the land? What exactly were we negotiating for? So I really hope that we can even start to question that because that plays a huge role in everything that's happening right now. Mm. Because if you connect the dots of that, you can connect the dots of why our country is the way it is, yeah. why poverty has a face in this country and wealth has a face in this country. And the face of wealth, the face of poverty, they don't look the same, right? And why is it that we can have political freedom, but we can't have economic freedom at the same time, mm. Mm. you know? And I think another question that's in some ways linked to that is one that you raise very sharply, which is about questions of gender justice in South Africa, because we look at particularly experiences of black women in democracy, and even black men, to some example, have, uh, to some extent, have, you know, been able to um, advance politically, not necessarily face the same kind of gender injustices, even though they are racial injustices. And even at the transition, one thing that stands out for me around that negotiating table that, that you mentioned is the lack of women's voices on either the ANC side or the National Party side, the, the forces of apartheid and liberation. And so I often wonder whether there's a link between that negotiation, which was so uh, unequal and, and just chronically underrepresentative of women's voices, and the condition and the dramatic failures that we see in terms of gender justice in South Africa today? Hmm. I think that when you talk about gender justice and also understanding the intersections of it and understanding that even when women are oppressed, women are oppressed differently. Mm. Um, the oppression mm. of a white woman does not look like the oppression of a black woman. The oppression of a black um, heterosexual woman doesn't look like the oppression of a black queer woman, mm. right? Mm. Um, and one of the things that I understand is that there's a lot of history that's led up to this. When you look at colonial history, apartheid history, black women were always placed on the receiving end mm. and were always got the shortest end of the stick, right? And were always violently abused by the system. Mm. And that's played a huge role in how our society looks today, yeah. right? The history of Sarah Bartman is one that I don't want us to take lightly because that has contributed to how black women, even black underage girls in this country are overly sexualized mm. and, seen, and seen as sexual objects. And there's a lot of colonial history of how black women have been abused that has contributed to our treatment today. And I'm really glad that you brought up the fact that even in the negotiations, mm. there was barely women there. If not, there wasn't any in the, in the part of leading the, the negotiations, in the people who were central to the central leaders of the negotiation period. Mm. There wasn't a single woman there. We know, we know who were the central leaders of the negotiation period. Why is it that there wasn't a woman there? Right? That's an important question. Mm. And I think that um, it's contributed a lot to even our justice system and how our justice system deals with um, cases of domestic abuse mm. and rape mm. and um, often desensitizing and dehumanizing black women's experiences and also the experiences of black queer women, right? Um, and also how there's always, and this is one thing that I saw quite vividly in high school. And it was vivid for me because it's like, it's a girl's school, we're all girls, you know, but we never got the same treatment, right? 
there was always this, this delicate light that white girls were seen in. They were delicate, right? Whereas in one of the experiences I had out of the 50,000 experiences I had in this institution yeah. um, was on my very first week of being in Girls High. This is before I decided to be a bad apple, as they say. <laughs> when I was still a good complying student, I had this experience where I was talking in class um, and laughing, but softly. And a white girl was doing the same thing as me, the exact same thing. In fact, even louder than me. And when she was reprimanded, she was told, please don't speak in class while I'm teaching. This is not a tea party. You can have your tea party at break. When I was reprimanded, I was yelled at and had a duster thrown at me in my direction. And I was told this is not a tavern, mm. right? Mm. And that even highlights how there's no sensitivity for black women in this country at all, right? And we've always been at the receiving end, right? And got the shortest end of the stick. And a lot of our history has contributed to that. And the fact that we barely even have there are black women in parliament who are parliamentarians, but even in that, their voices are suppressed, right? Um, their voices are suppressed. Even when you see the politics of how political parties are run, mm, right? Mm, the fact that we've never had a woman president, but we've had pretty good candidates that absolutely. could have been in office, right? Yeah. Um, and the fact that in South Africa, we have this culture of... Um, constantly making women deputies to uphold mm. a man, mm. constantly, whether it be it in the private sector, women, women are always just under the man, where the man can be the CEO, but no, the woman can't. Whereas in, the man can be the president, but the woman must be the deputy president, mm. Mm. right? Yeah. Whereas in, at times, we've had phenomenal women candidates, right? but their voices have always been suppressed. Yeah. Even in political parties, when you look at just the culture in political parties, how women will either eagerly be over-sexualized, right? Or um, women will always be at a point of, you have to choose one thing or the other, mm. right? You can never choose leadership because you'll be ostracized. You'll be seen as the person who can't follow basic rules. You'll be seen in that light of, you're the troublemaker. You're the one who's angry and losing their mind constantly, right? But if it's a man, it's okay. But you must just settle for having your voice suppressed, right? And upholding the man's voice yeah. constantly. That's how our political parties are all the time, all the time, in all of them, mm. not just the governing party, all of them. The woman can never rise above the man. Mm. It's seen as a serious offense. And we always separate issues. And this is the one thing that, you know, I've been repeating myself saying, we can't separate issues from each other. All these things influence and are linked to each other. The fact that there's this culture in South African politics, yeah. not just in parliament, in the political parties amongst themselves, there's this culture of women cannot rise above the man men, women must just sit back and uphold men, yeah. uphold male politicians, right? And when you do attempt to rise above, you're ostracized immediately. And immediately the narrative changes. You're this delusional per person, so delusional. And then that, that uh, narrative gets put into the media. Then people must see you as delusional. We've had a lot of women, poli female politics, politicians, right, who because they attempted to defy that culture, to rise above the man, not because they want to be defiant, problematic people, but because they are greater leaders at times, right? Mm. Because they're, they're, they're intellectually smarter or because they, they can better lead. When they attempt to do so, we've had a lot, right? Where immediately this person becomes delusional and that narrative mm. goes straight into the media. They're mm. delusional and they're not okay, mm. right? Immediately. So South Africa, we've got this very, very, very horrible and deep 
patriarchal culture that is in every facet of our life, in the household, in schooling systems, in politics, where you think that when you're in a political space, it's supposed to be this progressive hoo-ha, mm. space, right? Mm. But that deep patriarchal culture is there. So many women have been abused by male politicians in those spaces because of that culture, right? We see it everywhere, in every single facet of our daily lives. And those things contribute to that, right? And we're failing to put the links together. And when we can't put the links together, we won't better understand the current, um, why the current climax is the way it is, you know? And especially, especially that culture in politics, I don't want us to take it lightly because that contributes to even how the the politicians in parliament will speak up on issues affecting women. That culture directly, directly contributes to that. How they'll also speak up against domestic abuse, gender-based violence. Mm. That culture contributes to that. That culture that happens in political circles, it directly contributes to that. Yeah, I think what you say about the way that questions of gender are often suppressed in formal politics and in, in activist circles, even when they're progressive movements, the inequalities, the injustices, and the voices of women get overlooked. Um, that's, that's something that seems to be like in the DNA of South Africa that is, is maybe the social question. And it's so, it's so strange to me how this question is also like nowhere on the political landscape like never mind load shedding never mind education never mind healthcare like how can we have a country where there's such a great degree of gender injustice and no one is even talking about it on the front pages every week it's not like the scandal that should be talked about until it gets fixed the statistics we don't speak about like unemployment statistics they're just like one month sometimes someone speaks about it and then there's a summit and then it gets it gets pushed to the back. <laughs> there's you know. a summit. Yeah, there's a summit. Uh, and so maybe that new politics that you're mm -hmm. talking about when, when, we, when we sweep away all of the old one day <laughs> and, we, and we come through with the whole new paradigm, surely at the center of that has to be a different way of, of, of addressing gender injustice. Women's voices would have to be at the forefront of that and it would look and feel like a completely new politics just because that would be so much about what it would be about. I really think the only way to really change our current political climax to bring up these issues that are so relevant that, you know, we act clueless when something happens. Mm. Like, oh my God, this is happening in our country, dealing with just gender justice. Oh, why? I don't know. And we act so clueless, but it's like, the reason why there's that sense of cluelessness is because we're failing to address this as an actual social issue, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That, as you said, right? And it's not at the center, of, like, just put aside our, our current social issues of, you know, service delivery, yeah. the energy crisis, all of that. Why is it not there as well mm -hmm. in that group? Mm -hmm. Because as you can see, it affects so many aspects of our lives and affects so many aspects of our politics as well. And I think that that's because also we have a generation in governance that fails to see the importance of this issue, right? Um, even understanding basic things like the violence on queer people, we have a generation in, in governance that's still questioning why are queer people queer? So you have to understand that Perhaps it's a generation issue, right? That we have a generation that's been, you know, socially socialized in a certain way and taught a certain thing, right? Because back then, it was okay to teach homophobia in the, in the household and say, there's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Adam, or Eve and Eve, you know? Um, and it was okay to teach things like that. And maybe that's why the issues on violence towards queer people, which is also always part of gender-based violence all the time. Black lesbians being murdered on the basis of their sexuality and how they identify, right? And us failing to address that, right? Because of it being a generational issue that we have a generation that's still questioning 
why are queer people queer? You know? So I think that perhaps that will change once we have a new and fresh generation in, in governance and also at the decision-making table and at the center of, of um, discussions regarding the countries, the country's most pressing issues. Because my generation, your generation as well, has brought these issues to light. And it's, it's our generations that have brought these issues to light, not the other ones. So it's quite clear to me that we definitely need a generational change in governance in order to solve some of the most pressing issues in our current society, right? Because things aren't, aren't the same right now. And you can't use the model and structure from then, now, to fix issues of now. It's just not going to work. And I think that the only way to do that is, you know, this is a very difficult subject, but honestly, as young people, we also just need to just really just go vote. There is so many of us. Mm -hmm. Really, honestly, there's too many of us that if each and every single one of us voted, mm -hmm. we could really create a change in uh, the demographics of our um, the demographics of our governance. Absolutely. Because we're the ones who have an issue with the current governance, but we're the ones who are not voting as well. And yes. They're not changing anything for us. Yes, I acknowledge all of those issues that people might bring up. Mm. But at the same time, what are we practically going to do if we're not voting as well? If we're not voting to put ourselves there, what are we practically going to do? Are we just going to say, are we going to continue to not vote? Then the very same people who are not doing anything to change our lives, who are also not acknowledging the current issues that we're facing, who have made young people in this country become despondent to the, the country as a whole and just step back, right? Are we just going to continue to just have this whole cycle? Till when, right? What are we practically going to do? Why are we not going to the polls and also voting? If, mm. if literally each and every single young person, like right now, I think the 18-year-olds uh, the were born in 2005, the ones of mm. this year. And those are people with very strong opinions on what needs to change, mm. right? Not that they're going to be in governance because they're going to still be students next year, but you get the point I'm making, that yeah, if sure. every single one of us voted, and next year the 18-year-olds are going to be, what, the ones born in 2006, mm. those are people whereby they know what they want. Yeah. They know that what they want is maybe not a pensioner being the president, right? They know that very well, and mm. they're very strong-willed on that. Mm. So if every single one of us voted... We could possibly turn things around and have more of us in governance, Absolutely. right? It's going to take time to completely turn things around. But if every single one of us, like for me this year, I'm really making it my mission to really preach the voting to young people. Hmm. Because what are we practically going to do in all honesty? We also don't have power. Yeah. We don't have power. There's like, what, maybe a handful of us in, in parliament and also in, in parliament where voices are being suppressed. Yeah where they're being seen as, oh, you're too young to be here, right? Mm. Um, what are we also practically going to do, you know? We also can't complain why are those people not making mm. a change. They're being suppressed because there's so few of them, a handful or even half of a hand mm. of them are there to represent us. So for me, my, my mission till next year is really to preach to young people every time I encounter young people, please go vote, bro, like, mm. honestly. Just go. <laughs> Maybe that should be the, the motto of the campaign. Please go vote, bro. Just just please go vote. Actually, maybe it can be a campaign in my NPC, hey? <laughs> Love yeah. it. No, it's really refreshing to hear that because I also appreciate that, you know, just younger South Africans in general, but especially South Africans of your age, are so disillusioned, rightly, that the minute you even mention voting, like, you know, you can just see people's eyes glaze over and they're like, no, I'm not going to do that. But... Every so often in history, like, a new generation shocks the world. And they're just like, look, we're not going to be, poli we're not even necessarily going to be politicians or whatever, but we just want to send a message just so that you know we're here. And, like, my, my dream for 2024 is just that young South Africans shock the world. Like, yeah. And, like, we send a message that will reverberate globally, like, mm. 
Our parents may have stood for this, but we are not standing for this. And like, if we can do that, and it's so possible, like just numbers wise, yeah. but it's about being able to convince people that that's a worthwhile uh, investment of their time. Personally, I'm deleting the numbers of people who don't vote next year. <laughs> that's one way to do it. Clearly. And I'm blocking you from my social media. Hmm. Done. Yeah. Zuleika, that's all we have time for. We could have gone on for two hours, I think, but I'm mindful that you have to study as well. I do. So I do. There we go. Let's get that law degree. Yeah, I need to study so I can have a title like you. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming back on SMWX. It was really wonderful to speak to you and all the best for your future. Thank you. Aye, aye. The Cizwe Mbofu Welsh Experience Podcast. Aye, aye, aye.